0: You're listening to the Green Majority Podcast. Stay tuned for a wonderful show today. I'm joined by uh, two guests that I've actually wanted to have on for a long uh, time, and we're finally able to get them in here, so we're very pleased to present uh, Adele Dalla and uh, Barnaby Geis from the Center for Social Innovation today to talk about agents of change, climate change. However, this is also my opportunity to remind our listeners, if you can, if you like what we're doing here, if you'd like to support our show, you can do that. For as little as a dollar a month, we do uh, ask uh, voluntarily that people uh, try, if they can, to do $5, $10 more. It would be great. We are trying to uh, continuously improve our program, and membership is one of the easiest ways that you can help that happen. Uh, but we will take a dollar because it's a good token uh, just to let us know, hey, I don't have a ton of money, but uh, I appreciate what you're doing, and this is a, a great way to let us know. Uh, so you can go ahead and do that at patreon.com, P A T R E O N.com, slash greenmajority. Without further delay, here is the program. Enjoy. Welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM. This is live in Toronto or on a podcast or possibly live but not live on one of our very appreciated community radio partners across the country and internationally now as well. Uh, you may have noticed a tweet that went out. We have two additional members of CSI. Uh, listeners, long-time listeners of the show, know that both Stefan and I work for CSI. We often have CSI guests, but we have... Uh, the executive director with us today. So I'll introduce Adil Dalla first. Uh, thank you for joining us. You're the executive director of uh, Center for Social Innovation, uh, as well as uh, the uh, being on the board for the Stop Camp Foundation and one of the co-founders of Camp Reset. We can get into what those things are in a little bit if you like. But first of all, welcome to the Green Majority, Adil.
1: Thank Dude. you so much for having me.
0: And uh, secondly, I'm going to welcome our other guest, uh, which is Barnaby Geis, who's the CSI's Manager of Impact and Accelerators, uh, as well as having quite an extensive uh, experience in the film and television. I'll say extensive. It seems extensive to me, Um, as well as uh, being involved with a number of accelerators and a very interesting thing we can also possibly get into, if you wish, Barnaby, which is your uh, Fund for Journalism, uh, which I think is indirectly or directly related as well. So hopefully we'll get into that. But for starters, welcome to the Green Majority, Barnaby.
2: Thank you. Excited to be here.
0: And Stefan sneaking in under the wire for the best of reasons because Nailed he's it. been, he was working hard. Exactly.
3: You know, see, this is, this is the, my whole plan to prove that of how hard I work uh, to both uh, to the
0: center of the ocean and get here. I had to be just a little late today. Right. And that's probably the perfect, uh, the perfect time for me to say, and I, I'll have to apologize. I know you don't like being introduced this way, but we're very important uh, on transparency here. Uh, so I should just note quickly for the listeners that you are directly or indirectly, technically all of our bosses. <laughs>
1: Yes, I guess that is technically true.
0: So I, I won't mention that again. I know that's not how you like to uh, present yourself, but we're for the sake of transparency, we had to mention that.
1: Right. For sure. uh,
0: so let's get into the more interesting thing, uh, which is uh, the CSI Agents of Change program is going to be loosely the topic today. But uh, for listeners, maybe who aren't haven't been listening dedicatedly for years, tisk tisk. Uh, would you please just give us the overview of the Center for Social Innovation generally?
1: For sure, um the Center for Social innovation is a thirteen year old nonprofit organization uh, that started because five individuals um, you know were frustrated by uh, how people were working or not working together and their ability to access things like space in downtown Toronto. Uh, so they had a very simple idea, what would happen if we shared? And what happens if we shared space and our networks and our opportunities? And that really became the the starting point for uh, a co-working space for social entrepreneurs and people who want to make the world a better place. Uh, we started in one location and there was about 12 founding members Today, we have four locations in Toronto and affiliates in New York City and London, Ontario. And and in Toronto alone, we have over 1,000 organizations, and they work across all sectors. And their common purpose is this idea that uh, together, um, if we all share a similar value set and a belief that the world uh, can be better if we put people and planet first, uh, we can truly make the systems change that we need.
0: And I think one of the important takeaways from that is that with that as the model, the fact that CSI has become very successful in the sense that it's achieved many of its uh, uh, desired outcomes uh, or it is in the process of achieving them or is continuing to achieve them uh, Mm -hmm. is just the demonstration that 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 just that ethos, that model of let's do it together, let's build it ourselves works. And if it works for CSI, where else can it work? So I think that's a good. Place to switch over now to uh, give Barnaby a chance to say something other than just hello. Um, Barnaby, you're directly involved with the Agents of Change program, which is what we're going to sort of loosely keep as our theme this week. Uh, So perhaps you could just uh, explain for us the Agents of Change program generally, and then we'll move into now the more loose discussion on the specifics about this year's cohort, which is the climate change uh, specific
2: piece. Sure, I'd love to. So Agents of Change is kind of our flagship acceleration program, and I think I should probably define accelerator because I realize when I talk to people, they often kind of look at me with blank eyes, and I realize that it's not a common <laughs> word. And so an accelerator program is, can take many different shapes, but it basically has a set time frame, anywhere from a few months to a full year. Ours are usually always a full year. And then during that time, there's an application process. So startups or social enterprises can come into the program. And during that time, they'll get all kinds of support. So access to capital, mentorship, workspace, each other, uh, advisors, possibly technology and other things. So it basically literally tries to accelerate their success and amplify their impact.
0: So people have a good idea, you sort of verify that the idea has some uh, merit and then provide them resources so they can achieve their outcomes faster, basically.
2: Yeah, and some, some accelerators actually would have as a goal for people to, tr- to validate their idea in their accelerator and, and possibly to fail. And so that idea is you come in, you get support, you learn quicker, and you fail faster if, you're, if you are going to fail. And if you are going to succeed, that you succeed faster as well. Mm, selection pressure, you might even say.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm just getting into my my nerdy science stuff. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so this will be an opportunity for Stefan to join us in now. Now that we've sort of covered the basics, people understand what it is that we're talking about. Where I really just want to run this section and and probably the the second section of the show as well. Very loose discussion, just very podcasty. So we can feel free to you know politely interrupt each other. I just really want to have uh, uh, a conversation about what types of opportunities can come from this. What sort of benefit can come from this? So why don't we start with some specific uh, specifics? Uh, perhaps I'll start uh, by directing back to you, Adele. Um, just about what types of
1: people are in in this program? Who who is being accelerated? For sure, and and, and perhaps just before answering that, um, you know, uh, for anyone who's worked on an initiative or a project or a new business, um, anyone who's trying to start anything new, uh, you'll you'll resonate with the idea that there's a lot of barriers towards actually doing what you're trying to do. And, um, and on top of that, many of the organizations that we support in these programs identify as social enterprises uh, or organizations that are doing social good. Uh, and as Tanya Sermon, one of our, our co founders and our CEO, will often say, um, social enterprises exist where the markets fail. Mm. And I think that's just a really important context to add because uh, often these organizations face more barriers upon more barriers. Uh, and so the, the premise of the agency Change program, the premise of CSI at, at large is to remove them, to remove the barriers that, that typically social entrepreneurs face towards capital, towards mentorship, towards space, towards community, uh, and and the recognition that the more that we do that, the better the chance we have in enabling their success. Uh, fundamentally, we want all these organizations to succeed. Uh, they're doing the work that most of us know that's needed but aren't, aren't really adequately prepared uh, or have what we need to do it ourselves. And so with that context, I'll just give you like a few examples that come to mind from previous programs, and, and I'll let Barnaby speak to our current program. Um, uh, th- you know, the Agents Change program is about, f- we're in our fifth or sixth cohort now. Do you remember, Barnaby? It's f- uh, five sounds five right. Six. Yeah, five sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. The milestone year so um, and one of our earlier cohorts uh, Ilana Benari um, had a product called empathy toy uh, which she um, uh, she still exists today and she's now building on top of and the whole idea is she's really trying to disrupt the education system uh, by bringing empathy and teachings around empathy within our, our school spaces but also our workspaces and doing it through play and through toys uh, and uh, I think uh, a couple years ago time identified her product as uh, amongst kind of the future of education. Um, A couple years ago in our Agents of Change City Builders uh, cohort, we had a gentleman named uh, Luke Anderson. You mentioned StopGap at the beginning. So full disclosure, I do now sit on the board for StopGap. But I mentioned them because a lot of people would be familiar with StopGap as an organization that's trying to remove barriers in um, in the city. In that case, literally. Literally, uh, by creating – by placing ramps Mm -hmm. in places so people who use mobility devices can actually access them. And recently, they've been in the news quite a lot as one of the ramps here in Toronto over in Roncesvalles has being asked to be removed by the city and it sparked a really passionate and important conversation right now about access mm. and that's the work the stop has been doing and Luke himself has been I think uh, celebrated in every every way possible for, for the work that's happening and then last year we had um, in our cohort around community health uh, we had an organization uh, and and it's still going on it's kind of at, kind of almost at the end uh, we had an organization um, uh, basically, a couple of women who identify as death doulas is a very interesting concept where they're bringing um, agency and awareness and support to people who are at the later stages of their life. And uh, typically, this is a topic that, that either is taboo or something that we're just not comfortable talking a lot with. And it's so important because uh, in, in not recognizing it, uh, people tend to fall in more isolation the closer they get to death. And um, and these two women behind the death the organization and their death cafes is trying to bring awareness around it. Uh, and so as you can see from that example and from Luke and from Alana, uh, there is a, there's just a wide spectrum in terms of the type of organizations we've been able to support.
0: Mm. And I want to unpack a a little bit one of the things you said, which I think is really important, which was the thing about um, barriers. And one of the things I've encountered is that not everybody, um, but there are some people I find who – have a natural sort of sense that, well, if that was a good idea or if that was doable, someone would have done it already. And and not within the CSI, but I mean, just within the public, right? just like, you know, I'll, I'll often go and present these sort of crazy sounding ideas and people dismiss them sort of out of hand and be like, well, if it was, you know, if it was that easy, someone would have done it already, which in some cases it may be, I don't, I'm not asking you to defend my crazy ideas. But part of this idea is that there are no reason, often the reason why things aren't happening is because there's a, there's a barrier and that barrier often doesn't make sense. And I just want to make one example and then I'll, then I'll give it to you guys, maybe hopefully for some more. Directly related examples, but for instance, one of the things was I, I forget what the technicality is. Perhaps uh, Stefan can help me out here. Uh, but there was something around like you can you can support. Uh, I don't know if it's Ontario or or Canada, but. You can have an organization that supports um, homelessness, but you can't actually solve homelessness or something around. Do you remember it, what that was? The rules
3: for charity uh, mm-hmm. cannot eliminate poverty. It can it oh, can help yeah. alleviate poverty. So right. if your so if your charity is not a charitable act to actually stop poverty, it's an only charitable act to uh, yeah to to help it. Be you less can feed bad. people, but you can't. You you can give them the fish, but you can't teach them to fish. To some extent, yeah, like right. uh, at least the the way the the way the charities laws are are written out now. Yes.
0: So just one example, and and I like that example. I don't. Like it, you know what I mean? I like to use that example because it's illustrative of sometimes there are really significant barriers that don't, at least at first blush, make any sense whatsoever. Uh, perhaps you can give more more specific examples directly related to this topic about barriers. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Barbara, do you want to go?
2: Sure. Well, I mean, I would just say I think we've we've already said the word social enterprise or the term social enterprise a few times, so defining it I think will actually help kind of clarify some of those barriers. So if you've got a normal business, let's call it a vanilla business, uh, you have your customers, your revenues, and you're just judged on whether or not you're profitable. A social enterprise has a revenue stream, has those same concerns, but core to their mission is addressing, whether it's solving or alleviating, a social, environmental, cultural, or economic challenge. And so they're judged based on that, their impact so they're not just looking at their financials they're tracking their impact they're tweaking their programs sometimes their customers are different than the people they're trying to help sometimes they're one and the same mm. So to give you an example that most people can probably relate to, uh, at some point, most of us at school sold cookies or lemonade or something and then used that money to go towards a a charity or a school project. So that, in its simplest form, is a social enterprise. Mm. So CSI is a social enterprise where we have uh, uh, 2,500 members who pay to be a part of the community, and we use those funds to serve them and help them grow their enterprises and scale their impact. And then we also partner with organizations to create programs to help uh, enterprises where, where our revenue model might not be able to support them. Mm. So there's, there's a level of complexity in social enterprise that is still not really well understood by the business community or even people at large. And so there's an education piece and also just the complexity of trying to manage a triple bottom line is a very common term. So mm. people, planet, and profit.
0: Mm-hmm. And one of the other things you mentioned I was really interested in was this idea of failing faster. I think uh, you know a lot of people I think very understandably have a uh, uh, an aversion to failing. I think that's easy. Mm-hmm. But at the same point, um, uh, there's a benefit to failing faster. But can you just unpack that concept? What do you, what do you mean by that and why is failing faster a good thing?
2: Sure. So another term that you'll often hear in, in the kind of accelerator impact sector is, uh, is lean. So lean startup. Uh, there's a book by Eric Ries, which people can read. Uh, but basically, it's the idea of how do you test something very, very quickly? And it's also core to uh, design thinking. How do you design something, create an assumption, and test that as f- quickly as possible to learn from that? So you're, oh, you're always kind of building, testing, measuring, building, testing, measuring. And so a lot of people uh, we see, that they think they have this great idea, they get so far, they build a website, they do all this marketing, they get people to sign up, they do all these things before having actually tested their assumption. And so they may literally spend you know a year or two years, and then the revenues don't come in, the impact is not quite what they thought it would be, and then they have to really re-question their whole uh, you know, reason for being. And so this idea of failing fast is how do you test your concept as quickly as possible, learn, and either see that it's actually not a great idea and you shouldn't be doing it, or it is a good idea but just not quite in the way that you thought it would be, and so you do what's called a pivot.
3: Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, I feel like there's there's this idea of uh, of trying to fail as quickly as possible and then trying to figure out how that that whole thing works is actually is incredibly important. I think specifically within s- these sort of more social enterprises, uh, specifically because it's one thing to to figure out if you're profitable or not. Um, and and I think a lot of the time uh, you sort of spend a bunch of time figuring out how to make your so one of the two things work. Right? You either figure out you either figure out if your business works or if your social venture or the social side works and then uh, but then if the other side fails you still have a failing social enterprise uh, and so I think this, I, the, the reason why this is actually even more important even in the social enterprise field than it would necessarily would be in, in, in sort of more regular business is that just doing your regular business isn't enough to know if you're succeeding or failing uh, you know, like Luke could be giving everyone a ton of ramps, uh, but if there's another step after that ramp, they're still not actually—he's still not actually getting the social enterprise piece of it. He, like, you right. know, the number of ramps installed isn't actually necessarily equal to the number of buildings that he's actually made accessible, for example. Um, and so, I th- this this idea of, of of trying to fail as quickly as possible is exceptionally important in this field, uh, specifically because there's because. You can be doing one entire what feels like an entire business and then not still achieving your objective like to perhaps the the, the quintessential example are organizations that Build up a fully functioning business, uh, and then, but with this idea in the back of the head, that they'll eventually get to this. Uh, they'll get to the social venture eventually, right? Mm. Um, until they get to the point where they keep building it and building and building it. But the social side never really integrates effectively into their business, and so suddenly they just become a for-profit business that sort of has this thing they give money to, uh, which while good you know I'm not against for-profit businesses giving money to these things that's better than just the first part exactly <laughs> um, uh, it's it's still not actually something It's still not actually doing it's, it's not changing the system right mm-hmm. the system remains exactly in place as it would be before um, and then the other option of course is that they pivot to to just saying they're raising awareness uh, which I think there was a recent article that's been sh- being shared around I think from like the Stanford uh, innovation review that
0: was just titled stop raising awareness already <laughs>
3: uh, which I greatly appreciated
0: yeah. I think this is a great place I to read it back to Di, but you look like you had a comment first, so go ahead.
1: I have a slightly uh, additional or different perspective than my two ah. fellow co- uh, co-presenters here. Um, yes, to everything you both said, and uh, there's an important piece to remember, which is entrepreneurship uh, is both sometimes comes from a place of privilege and sometimes a place of necessity. Um, and uh, and for people who for whom entrepreneurship is you know comes from a place of necessity, um, I think it's really important to remember that the concept of failing fast uh, might actually seem. Um, uh, uh, like not uh, compassionate or empathetic to their particular uh, situations or the barriers that they, they might face. Um, and, and so like I'm, I'm thinking about this a lot now because you know two years ago, I would have said, yeah, fail fast, lean startup, etc. But I also recognize that I was coming from a place of privilege. I recognize that Eric Ries writing The Lean Startup is a white man that comes from a place, place of privilege and that that methodology and thinking doesn't necessarily apply uh, to people who come from different places of life. Uh, and who face barriers, which I don't even fully uh, completely understand. And that's why fundamentally, you know, CSI, you know, as Barnaby done such a good job in articulating, you know, with regards to the kind of programmatic support that we find the access to funding uh, that we provide. But I think fundamentally, the thing that we do better than anything else is access uh, to a community. Um, you know, fundamental to our human experience is our desire to belong, especially when you're trying to do something new, you, you tend to do it in isolation. Uh, and so if we can create a space where people are included, um, and, and really put intention and thinking behind that, I think that to me is the most important element to, to ensuring their access and starting to think about what barriers that we need to remove uh, exist. Awesome. I think that's an
0: excellent place to take a break. I will save my question for you after the music break. But very quickly, we're going to go and uh, and listen to our uh, tech tell us what our music break is going to be. Before we do that, I'm just going to remind you in case you tuned in just now. We're listening to The Green Majority on CIUT or our podcast or one of our wonderful community radio partners. Our guests today are Barnaby Geis and Adil Dalla, and we're talking about Agents of Change, uh, Climate Change, which is an accelerator program for uh, innovative startups and social entrepreneurs and all sorts of cool things. We'll talk more after the music break, but Kai, what are we going to listen to? Here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kester in studio as usual, as usual for usual, except he's taking a vacation soon. Stefan Hostetter, my co host. Hello. And Barnaby Geiss and Adil Dalla from the Center for Social Innovation. We're talking about the Agents of Change program, uh, which is an accelerator program that CSI runs uh, currently focused on the issue of climate change. Um, so why don't – I had a question for you, Ido, but I feel like its place got lost, so I'm going to weave it back in somewhere else. Uh, let's come back a little bit to specifically um, the climate change thing because I want to make sure we don't uh, – I'm, I'm loving the conversation, but I, don't, I want to make sure we don't miss out on the op- op- awesome opportunity to promote some of the cohorts. So why don't we use that segue of the music break to sort of redirect your back. Let's talk about who some of these uh, people who are involved in this year's program are and what are they working on. Sure. I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, so we already we, we already got the uh, the privilege of talking
3: to one last week in, in Peggy Sue Collections. Um, so I'll, I'll sh- jump to the other one, which I I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Ripple Farms. Uh, and so there's there's 21 organizations, and so I'm kind of hoping to so slowly weave them actually throughout throughout this year and get get as many of them we can on the show. Um, and what's funny also just a quick aside about different social enterprises is that there are some that's that are sound super interesting to uh, to the community to the public, and some that are very important but sound very boring mm. um, isn't that uh, always the case yeah exactly um, and so and so ripple farms is one of the more uh, one of the more popular uh, appealing uh, sounding topics because they do aquaponics uh, they mm. have, that does sound appealing yeah exactly <laughs> um, they actually have a functioning aquaponic uh, farm that's down evergreen right now uh, which you guys can go check out you can just go in and, shipping
2: containers
3: Yeah, it's in a shipping <laughs> container exactly yeah so it's a shipping container uh, or two shipping containers I guess um, and it's an aquaponics so just to define. Aquaponics basically that is using uh, fish and a fish ecosystem uh, below the below the the plants. So you're both farming fish and plants at the same time, uh, and so it actually for the density that you get out of uh, out of food production is actually quite high. And it also is a way to to really you know it's it's not a lot of places where you get to actually have grow a bunch of food in the downtown Toronto core for actually how much space it is you know the shipping container is very small and yet they are producing i think because of the way they stack food it's uh, it's it's like 12 to 1 or something in in relation to how much square footage would normally be needed to to grow how much food they're growing uh and and they're able right now at least to to provide perhaps the most local food probably anyone in toronto can eat unless they garden in their backyard uh which speaking of garden in your backyard it's a great idea um, it's almost spring never mind the weather outside well actually no it is kind of spring yeah, it's today. kind of spring today plant some bulbs get some uh get some food out there mm-hmm. um, but uh, but they are providing food actually for evergreens uh, restaurant. Uh, so like they they're literally walking the cabbage that they grow maybe twenty five steps and it's being served. Now that's uh, sustainable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's like you know you are going to talk about you about food miles. How about food steps? Mm-hmm. How many steps does it take? <laughs> um, and so and so they're they they're, they're a fascinating sort of organization that, that really that really is really easy to sell, right? I, I like you can it's it's sort of inherently interesting and people want to know more. Uh, on the flip side of that, um, and perhaps uh, perhaps uh, I'll, well, I'm gonna, I'll get a keel on just so keel can perhaps correct me if I'm wrong if he's really, really good at selling this to the average person. Um, But Akil runs an organization called Green Story. Mm. Uh, And Green Story is a B2B organization, which actually, I guess, what they do is they help people like Ripple Farms tell their sustainable story to the public. Uh, And so he really, he sort of, he has this fascinating uh, multidimensional way storytelling sort of, it's, it's it's sort of an app. I think it's partially an app, but he has like a whole bunch of different sort of tools he's got going, um, in, in which he can sort of take a bunch of different metrics. Uh, I believe last year, actually, the Green Living Show he uh, he provided he was providing sort of these visuals for other people in the Green Living Show to say how much they were saving when people purchase their products. Um, so it's all about telling the story of the these green products in a way people understand, and, and in a way you can sort of you can sort of. Um, understand how much, say, water usage relates to how much carbon usage. And so he's got the sort of all these different metrics, uh, which helps environmental businesses and organizations explain how much they're doing. Uh, which, again, is, is one of the things where it's like, I'm super excited about it, because the actual possibility of, of say, carbon impact is huge. Uh, but, you know, it, when he talked to the general public, it's like, well, can I buy anything from him? no not really <laughs> like Akil isn't selling you anything uh, he's he's selling you other people's things um, but he himself is so it's, it's interesting bringing up talking about the sort of range of different social enterprises because there are some that that are much more uh, f- so public facing uh, and those public facing organizations uh, are really easy to talk about and are really easy for us uh, in, like I find myself actually initially struggling with how to tell the stories of these sort of uh, more behind the scenes yet very important important. Uh, stories um, and and so it's like this interesting battle. Each cohort has say you know ten that are like, look, you're doing this thing and it's right there. and You can see it and hold it, uh, and that's really easy. And then fifteen or say no, sorry, ten that are, well, you know this is a very important issue and they're working on it in this particular way. And it will take me about six minutes to explain to you, but I promise it's very cool and very important.
0: Is there an, an inverse inversely proportional relationship between uh, how quote unquote sexy it sounds and how important it is? Maybe no uh, no. Necessarily, right? There's, because there's definitely some. Of course, kidding.
3: yes, of course. Um, but there's definitely some that are because there are definitely some that are you know some of the really, really the you know. Some of the, what's interesting about, say, Peggy Sue and, and Ripple Farms is that because people understand food and fashion so easily, it's very easy to then make them understand why these would be important. Uh, what people don't understand is how hard it is for environmental organizations to, say, sell their
0: green story. Mm. So let's, I think the, th- the theme a little bit there, and I'll, and I'll redirect back to our, our guests on this, is the, the idea of risk and risk aversion. A lot of the reason mm. why uh, innovation doesn't happen is not because nobody has the idea, but because people are risk averse, either because uh, maybe in, in one case somebody's more profit-minded be like, well, this would be great, but I'm, it's, I, you know, the opportunity cost of my capital is not going to be as good. And I'm more interested in, in personal gain, uh, you know, as much as I might be sympathetic to a social thing, uh, just as far as the general population, not as far as um, people within the program. Uh, and then there are other people, as you said, who, who just simply can't, they're, they're risk, they're so risk averse because they can't afford to fail at some, at some point. So uh, can we just toss around the idea of sort of aversion to risk for a variety of reasons being why so many good ideas don't do Because it's, I feel like this is sort of the the choke point of where the Agents of Change program actually does by give, by giving people opportunities to be more to, – to be rather less risk averse and, and actually try new things. Yes. Please, yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, I, I, you know, to be to be honest, and I'm not sure what was the question in that.
0: Oh, sorry. It was so just the idea of where does um, where does the opportunity of giving people uh, the support structure allow them to try things they would not have been able to try before, and, and how does that how big an impact is that on actually the types of organizations that we can see grow? Like how big is people not willing to try new things because of reasons either they can't or they don't want to a problem in actually keeping new ideas off the market. Hmm. Or is it really – as opposed to being that maybe this makes it more clear, as opposed to just like people not having the ideas in the first place?
1: I was going to say something, but I saw you leaning in. Do you want to – Sure.
2: To, yeah? I mean just that entrepreneurship in general and perhaps social entrepreneurship even more uh, abides really well by that quote by Reed Hoffman, one of the founders of LinkedIn. And I'll probably butcher it, but something along the lines of entrepreneurship is like jumping off a cliff and assembling your airplane on the way down. So from what I've observed, these people are not risk adverse to begin with or else they wouldn't be in our programs just because they wouldn't have taken a chance. And, I mean, a lot of them are really struggling. Like it's not – they're sacrificing a lot personally. They're, uh, you know, staying and living on a couch at a friend's house or their parent's house. All of their money is going back into their enterprises. Uh, I work with one where she works as a waitress by night, social entrepreneur by day. Uh, So these are people who really just believe in their mission and what they want to accomplish. And so I think a program like Agents of Change or the CSI community is sometimes less about trying to get people to take risk. But just once they start going into that direction of anywhere from I have an idea or I have a cause I really believe in to I'm going to invest everything that I am and have into making this happen, we're there to support them. And sometimes that means a community is literally just holding space for people uh, there to, to talk to them, to, for a shoulder for people to cry on, <laughs> sometimes quite literally. It can be even
0: for people that aren't. I mean, all, all four of us sort of. We, you know, we work at CSI and We're sort of in this world to to some degree. But um, I think many of the listeners may not really completely under understand. Like a lot of the people who are who are going and doing these things, as you say, are are you know sleeping on sleeping on couches and they're they're eating dry Cheerios for dinner because literally not only all of their energy are going into it, but often almost all of their resources too. I mean, they're not they're not doing this from some trust fund account. These are people putting their last couple of bucks into their their idea. That's their dream. I think I, I think. I think that's something that's maybe not fully appreciated by people and who and don't And on
2: that note, here. it also depends on the cause that they're trying to, mm-hmm. to fix, right? Some causes, even with a social or environmental impact, do actually attract a lot of capital. Uh, mm-hmm. To borrow a term that you used earlier, they would be quote-unquote sexy. Mm-hmm. And so those do attract investment. Other ones um, are really difficult to run, to be sustainable while having an impact. I work with one enterprise that's incredible called DanceAbility. And so they have programs where they do dance classes with people who face um, severe disabilities and wouldn't be able to participate. So mostly children who wouldn't be able to participate in, say, a class at a, at a, a dance studio. And so through dance, through movement, they're totally changing people's lives. And when you see teachers talk, or teachers and parents talk about the impact that those classes have on their children, it's incredible. But in order to scale that, to grow that, when you're charging, you want to keep the classes affordable for parents. There's a real, real dilemma there. How do you pay yourself? How do you grow your enterprise while making sure that you remain accessible and and have an impact?
0: Mm. So speaking on of impact, and uh, I'll let uh, Stefan jump in here in one second. But the, one of the things I I, I want to make sure we get to as well is just the idea of how do we measure that. So I'm I'm assuming that you don't have. Uh, one metric that you measure everybody's success by, but like, let's talk about what do we, how do we judge people successful? Is that in their own eyes? Uh, is there some sort of uh, program standard by which uh, success is measured? If you can just speak on that, and but I'll pass to Stefan as well.
3: Um, sure, I, I was gonna, I was gonna go on about how how often unsexy entrepreneurialism is, um, but uh, <laughs> but, I'll, but I'll answer that question instead. One one thing we've started doing is having a baseline survey mm-hmm. uh, to understand exactly how. How these organizations were when they entered the agent exchange program, uh, and then we do another survey at the end to see what they were like when they left. Um, and it's it, it, the metrics of the, on those ones are are largely a because they have to work for every agent. They're largely based around their organization, right? They're how many volunteers uh, have you taken in? Uh, how many volunteers have worked for you? Uh, how many you know, how many paid staff do you have? Uh, how much revenue do you have? The sort of really basic stuff they can understand, um, which. Where it gets tricky, of course, is actually trying to find a way to understand what their social impact has been. You know, um, and, and one thing we've done for this actually, actually particular Agents of Change program, um, which is going to be fascinating in part because we're – to see how it really works, uh, is we've hired on a, um, a man named Steve Williams. Yeah. Steve Williams. Nailed it. Uh, to, to work with every agent to actually understand how they've reduced carbon. Um, and so, what's interesting about it is originally the idea was actually to figure out how much carbon each reduced, uh, and then and then given some of these things, it was sort of like, well, what if we just gave them a way to do it? Um, uh, because because it's so hard, you know. Like how do you how do you as say Green Story, uh, a company that helps other companies tell their carbon reduction stories. Take credit for some of that reduction. Like what is what – what exactly is what, – what, what can come back to them to being this reduction? Uh, or alternatively, how does you know, Ripple Farms decide whether or not uh, their head of lettuce uh, has X amount less carbon than, uh, than one that is somewhere else? You have to do – this whole idea of like full cost accounting of, of our systems is something that we haven't done for anything. And so to then try to even compare the new thing, which would take a whole new subset of information, even you can't – there's not even a baseline to compare it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like I feel like the – it's very easy for us to get baselines on I think the uh, the organizational structure, uh, but much more difficult for us to us get baselines on the social impact. And there are some that are very very easy to do this, uh, or at least in some ways, you know, like for example, every time Luke puts a ramp down, then that one one more space is accessible, and he can be like, I've made this number of space accessible because of this one reason. But that doesn't speak at all to the other the other the larger conversation he's causing, and doesn't speak at all to the larger the larger social impact that he's having through all the other work that he doing outside of just actually making space accessible. And so there's this inherent uh, difficulty because we, we've become very good as a society of understanding one thing, which is money transfer, basically. Um, and even that necessarily isn't very accurate in many ways. Um, but we've never figured out how to do sort of any of these other uh, any of these other pieces. And it, like we, we didn't end up there was a possibility that we were going to end up having a uh, tool library uh, as a part of our part of agents. And perhaps for a second year, we might end up having one. And there was this whole conversation about like, what does the carbon reduction look like in uh, in, in a particular
0: tool library? Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, because of the difficulties of understanding, you know, if someone has to drive and pick up that hammer every single time, is is that particular hammer actually reducing, reducing carbon emissions, or is the reason the tool library is important, outside, a larger outside, a, a larger piece of this? Uh, you know, is the reason why the tool library is important is that it actually, maybe because it's reducing consumption and ch- changing buying patterns, and that is a re- that's where the carbon reduction is coming from, not, say, from the particular renting of a particular hammer. And and the the entire industry uh, the entire everything like the world is rife with people with misunderstanding of where it real impact happens. Um, And I think, and I think so trying to find these baseline metrics is incredibly important. It's, but it's also a massive challenge. Uh, And so I'm very glad Steve Williams has to do that. And we don't.
0: (laughs) All right. So we've just got about two minutes left in this section. I will throw this, I'll direct this at uh, Barnaby, but if uh, kindly, if either of you would uh, care to have a comment, I'm interested in one of the Barnaby, you just mentioned a minute ago, uh, I think you said it was the co-founder of LinkedIn, uh, something about jumping off a cliff and then building the airplane on the way down. Um, one of the things that just occurs to me sometimes is that idea of you know jumping off the cliff, building the airplane, and halfway down when the airplane's three-quarters of the way, uh, you, one of your passengers complains that you don't have eco-friendly toilet paper. <laughs> uh, talk about the challenge. At the same point, you know, we talk about um, the environment and climate change. Obviously, basically, that's the point of this show. Uh, long-time listeners of the show know that I have uh, had some extremely harsh criticism for a wide variety of government agencies and companies and all sorts of other things. At the same point, though, I do understand that uh, even in a sort of um, regular business incubator, much less a uh, space full of so much constant change and motion and everything, and just trying to even keep the whole thing together and, and make it all move uh, towards a common goal. And then also trying to do things like, well, what is your, how are we improving sustainability and how are we improving diversity about how do you keep something to, when you're trying to build an airplane that's in, you know, in motion off a cliff and make improvements as you go, can you just sort of speak to those sorts of challenges as far as improving yourself while having to actively keep the airplane together in the first place? Mm-hmm.
2: Sure. Um, I mean, I would start with some good news. Canada's uh, consistently rated as one of the best places to be a social entrepreneur in the world, in terms of the supports uh, available. And Ontario's a leader in Canada. The Ontario Social Enterprise Strategy is really incredible in having a huge impact uh, in helping social enterprises and in developing the field of impact measurement that Stefan spoke about. And so, when you're you're trying to iterate basically is what you're saying as you're creating that airplane that's where those impact measurement models and the supports of experts will be so key Mm. so you should have basically a logic model a theory of change and then as your as your airplane is going down to keep to the analogy you start to measure like the wind velocity and different things and start to realize that something's not quite working the way that you thought and again it goes back to trying to learn quickly in order to to adapt quickly um so, yeah, I think, you know, that's constantly the challenge, and this is an example that's being thrown out a lot, but, and I hate to, to really bring it up again, but Tom's Shoes is a great example of they had a theory of change that was completely wrong, and they actually created a lot of uh, dis- dis- disruption in, in countries where they just dumped a bunch of free shoes. So through rigorous impact measurement, they would have quickly, and piloting that project, quickly learned that their approach should change, uh, or they could actually have a detrimental impact.
0: Oh, that's an important point. Yeah, that, that sometimes failure is not doesn't just mean not succeeding, but it also could mean that you accidentally make the problem worse. I think that's a very important point. Adil, do you have anything to add to that?
1: No, I actually think Barnaby yeah. did an excellent job answering the question. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so why don't why don't we take a
0: nice relaxed uh, second break there. We're going to come back. We're going to mix in a little bit of uh, news uh, as well. So uh, largely Stefan and I will be introducing a couple of things. But, of course, uh, we encourage our guests to jump in where they can as well. Uh, but uh, Megan is now going to jump in and let us know what our second and final music break is. Take it away, Megan. All right, we're back. You're listening to the Green Majority here on ZIT 89.5 FM in the final home stretch of the main program. However, if you're listening to the bonus show, unlike last week, sorry for that, there was a technical. Uh uh, issue last week with bonus show Well, we will also have a bonus show this week so if you're listening to the podcast there's lots more to come but for our live audience and for our radio syndicates, we're getting into the final section Stefan, i'm going to ask you to introduce uh one of our news items and then we have a sort of a general discussion topic as well for the last few minutes here as well but let's get to a couple of news items real quick uh
3: yeah for sure so the the one the most obvious one i think has to be the fact that you know the canadian budget dropped on on uh on wednesday i like how the budget has become like an album It's Mm. the same, you know, the budgets drop in the same way albums do now, Mm -hmm. which is weird because you know exactly when both are coming. So, uh, but anyways, the, the budget existed and was, uh, people told, I guess they told us about it is really all that's happened. Um, and it's got, it's got, it's a fascinating sort of combined, uh, there's been, as every budget there's a wide range of opinions uh, and you know, it's you know it's like anywhere from uh, the Tudeau government uh, like the, the way you can always figure out how what the two barriers on each side of these are it's like how does the conservatives respond which is you know this is going to crush us in, def- in debt and then how does the uh, how does NDP respond which is, is of course we will you know rich people are winning all the time always um, and, and and while both of those can still be simultaneously true it sort of gives you the goalposts of where the truth probably falls somewhere in between those two things, um, and the real the real takeaways are that they're sort of the, the we sort of knew this was going to happen anyways, but they sort of punted a lot of their innovation conversations uh, for a year, uh, but they are doing a pretty high investment in clean tech, uh, so it's sort of like it's it's also interesting from an environmental angle watching which people are happy and which aren't. So the clean tech environmentalists are very happy. Uh, one point one billion dollars over five years uh, will be going into different versions of clean tech, uh, which is things to like access to financing, R and D, tax credits, uh, and a clean technology data and clean growth hub. Um, and and so and so that is uh, uh, so like so they are very happy. Uh, but on the flip side of that in the agriculture sector uh it has it's getting 70 million dollars over 6 years um and so you know it's 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 you always see these these divides around where the you know where the government decides is going to you know is, is going to push in the same way that you know even within transit you get almost you get a, a, a story that it Finds itself on two sides at the same time, in that you know half the people are are, are seeing this transit budget as as, as very poor uh, because it's you know removing tax credits for people who use who is, it's going to cost people who use transit more. It's yet another going to another cost for people who use transit. At the same time, they are giving a, some billions of dollars to transit to build new transit. Um, no, unfortunately we, uh, those of us who live in Toronto know, uh, billions of dollars can be wasted in many ways. Um, <laughs> and still the person who needs that money back from the Metro pass doesn't get the money back from the Metro pass. Uh, and so I think from a, I think from an equity in transit perspective, this, 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 uh, this budget kind of fails, but perhaps from a, will we actually get decent transit? Maybe we'll get fined somewhere. Well, I think that more has to do with whether or not we ever give up on the Skyro subway, but, um, but yeah, so there's, there's, there's again, there's a massive amount of information here. Uh, it's, it's the budget. Uh, but it's always interesting to sort of understand what the different pieces uh, of, of w- how it touches the environmental movement generally, right? Mm. Um, and I think there's now this sort of dichotomy or this, or this, for more and more, there's a, I say, a line being drawn within the environmental movement um, of the innovation environmental movement, which is clean tech and and sort of new new technologies, and the sort of old traditional conservation and, and clean Clean up all of the things that you've you've messed up piece of environment. Uh, and so you can have budgets now that are good and bad at the exact
0: same time. Right. And that's uh, going to take a while like this. This is all going to take a while to unpack. And right. It's still being we're still we're still looking at what, what are the exact. It's a very downs? long document. Yeah. <laughs> what are the well, I mean uh, specifically, but yeah. also, I mean, just like the industry as well, the news media in general, Is it's going to take a little while to digest this and fully uh, sort of factor in where all the chips are going to lie as well. So, well, I mean, we're, we're going to come back to this. Oh, yeah, for
3: sure. Yeah, well, you'll be talking about for at least probably next year until the next budget. Yes. Yeah basically yeah unless beyonce makes it out drops an album in between in which case we'll forget Mm -hmm. about all of this yeah
0: uh really quickly as well uh something else we'll come back to more but just a couple of quick points about uh was that this past uh wednesday if you're listening live on on friday uh march the 24th uh that would be wednesday the 22nd i guess am i counting backwards correctly i think i am (laughs) um The uh, cap and trade uh, went into effect. We had our first uh, auction uh, of carbon credits here in Ontario. Um, This is going to be one of four Uh, going forward. They're looking to uh, estimate the program will raise about $1.9 billion annually. Uh, And by law, the money will be put into projects that reduce greenhouse gas emissions, such as public transit and home energy retrofit, as Stefan uh, partially was mentioning there as well. A lot of focus on on transit, which, uh, as you said, with an asterisk next to it, as usual, is good news. Um, The the only other thing I want to say about that for now was, of course, uh, was that the uh, opposition is saying they would scrap it. Uh, Scrap it, my favorite quote of all time, saying it's a $1.9 billion cash grab, uh, as opposed to a the other way of doing the same thing that they're proposing that he also admits they haven't fully worked out um so i'm just i'm so sick of transparently uh self-serving political dishonesties uh i'm not even gonna i'm not even gonna let him bait me today stefan i'm gonna (laughs) let it go uh but that's obviously um just very very silly i mean it's it's just fundamentally dishonest they're they're saying that they just want to do a similar program another way um that you can have there's conversations about which of those programs is better uh, but to say that one is a cash grab and that the other one is great is just simply wrong uh, so we'll leave that there we'll come back and spend more time on that when we're doing a more news focused show uh, what I wanted to use our last 10 minutes for and uh, I will invite uh, Barnaby and Adil our guests back in to comment on is I'll just read a couple of headlines uh, as far as uh, basis for the conversation and then uh, I'll introduce uh, the question. I'll, I'll start with uh, Barnaby for comments. We can go around really quickly, which was just the general concept. I've, I've been thinking a lot recently. Um, among hundreds of other headlines I could be reading, I've been reading headlines such as, recently from this week, Trump begins rollback of Obama's current, uh pollution standards to curb emissions, uh, also uh, just annihilating the EPA, among many, many other things. Uh, we're seeing more noises of leadership coming from uh, China, um, not necessarily leadership in the same style of leadership but some form of leadership um and it's been making me think a lot about you know canada's identity as far as its uh, uh outlook on a wide variety of issues uh when we're dealing with uh, creating common markets so for instance the cap and trade uh, is between ontario quebec and california um there's integration in a number of effects there's nafta there's so many ways in which we're tied it's our largest trading partner um The uh, the being next to the largest military in the world means that we don't have to spend very much on defense because it's that kind of like, well, I'm not very big, but look at my big friend over here sort of thing. Um, I I haven't seen anybody in the media. I haven't seen any politician do this, but I've been thinking a lot about it. What Mm -hmm. happens to Canada? What does Canada look like? Where are we going to be as far as leadership? Where are going to be as far as um, us being able to have a role in global affairs if the U S becomes more of an intrinsic and, and loses its power and power moves elsewhere. We don't need to comment on how we feel about who might get that power, but just as far as the fact that the, our, our biggest ally, as far as trade and a number of other things being reduced in importance, does that concern you for leadership on climate change specifically? Uh, and then also just on anything else more generally, I'll start with you, Barnaby.
2: Um, yeah, it's, it's very tough times. I think where there's a lot of soul searching that's happening and, You know, you talked about the kind of centers of power moving away from from the United States, perhaps. I mean, I I think we're still far from there. They Mm. are outspending everybody on the military. And if anything, they may be more belligerent than ever. Mm. Uh, I would point out that the U.S. has never been a leader when it comes to things like human rights, racism, wars, the environment, inequality. Um, They've been very good at convincing many that they are leaders, but they aren't. And so what we're seeing now is the mask is falling. Mm. The mask is falling and we're seeing what's always been there. uh, And very obvious, I would say to a lot of people, and maybe less obvious to middle class white people who are less affected, who, um, you know, aren't living in countries that are being bombed or occupied. And I think that the reason that that's important that the mask has come off is that this is our chance in Canada to think about, well, what does that relationship look like now with the United States, but also who do we want to be? And so we have people like the Kelly Leaches and the Kevin O'Leary's of Canada that are saying that we need to basically race the United States to the bottom. We need to deregulate everything, right? We need to let capitalism, you know, take over and, or else we're just we're going to lose our competitive advantage. But that, that's not a race that we should want to be in at all. And I would say that what a revolutionary act it would be for us to create a state right next to the United States that embodies what the world can be, what progress looks like, uh, what ethical capitalism, whatever that is, and that, you know that's really hard to define, might look like. Um, you know, I think that we also have a mask, and if we look beneath that mask, we'll see – the atrocities that we've created to our indigenous brothers and sisters, the racism that is so alive and well in Canada that we so easily pretend like it's not. And, you know, our our horrendous treatment of temporary foreign workers and the list goes on. And so I would just say that this is our opportunity not to try to compare ourselves to the United States and tap ourselves on the shoulder and think how much, how better we are, but can we be a leader? Can we be an example for what the future could look like and to look our grandchildren in the eyes and be able to say, yeah, we tried. We tried to do something different.
0: Yeah, it's, it's long been Canada's favorite pastime. And I think in more destructive ways than than good ways to say, well, at least we're not the United States. I think I think we've been providing ourselves an opportunity to really just Turn our eyes away from some pretty ugly things because we like to say, "Well, we're we're well not as bad as the United States." Is this an opportunity for a not just a rebranding of Canada, but a a new sort of uh, honest and self assessing look to really maybe improve our status in the world, not by talking but by doing, um, by actually having this this honest self reflection? I'm curious what you think, Adil.
1: You know, I think that with us uh, in the year Canada 150. Uh, and I want to, um, you know, honor something I recently learned in, in speaking to that, uh, and saying Canada 150 plus to recognize that the uh, narrative of Canada exists beyond just the last 150 years. Uh, and as we're in the kind of this moment in time, I think it is in a huge opportunity for us to look in the mirror uh, and ask ourselves who we want to be. And, and I echo a lot of, you know, what Barnaby said. Uh, and I think about like your analogy as you 're speaking about the military and about this idea of like we haven 't had to ramp up because we have this like really big uh safety net next door. Um, the way I kind of simplify that is like well our, so we 've been complacent uh, to be riding shotgun with the bully mm-hmm. and um, uh, our silence and our complacency uh speaks just as loud as their actions. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we do not use this moment of time to ask ourselves who we are uh, and aspire to be – have our own voice and to be authentic to the words that we say, uh, then the image of Canada that I grew up with is not the image of Canada that is. And I think that's a really hard place to be. But – uh, you know, I'm an individual who defaults to optimism, mm-hmm. so I do think uh, that this is going to be a, p- a period of time where, we're, where you know, to Barnaby's point, when we look back and we're talking to our grandchildren, we'll be able to say, hopefully, that this is the moment where Canada uh, took a big step forward and became its own.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And I think Steph, there's, yeah. I, I think there's to jump off that there's one piece that continually to speak of uh, argument, even of 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 what they say that what we grew up thinking, but even the. <laughs> The the you know we, we talked about say the the dichotomy or the, dif- the difference in what realities to actualities within the states and, and sort of how they sort of how many of the sort of narratives that exist from the states exist but perhaps the most quintessential example that exists right now for Canada is this are these images that we keep getting shown of of the RCMP greeting refugees who are crossing the crossing the border from the United States to Canada. And like look we like or 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 the you know, or the or the ones that are have hiked through the you know, through the through the the cold to get here. And then the story ends before the sentence then they go to jail yeah. it's like we have this entire thing set up and, and then we make press congratulating ourselves for welcoming the refugees but they don't, it's not like we welcome them and they go somewhere good, they're welcomed and then they are sent to jail where there's, there's a, if you want to understand what happens can happen to these people, look at the Toronto Star uh, expose that they've been running for the last couple, the last little while about indefinite detention that occurs to these people these are, so we, we somehow managed to be a, 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 a state that will have media that will run these massive fluff pieces about how great we are accepting these refugees crossing these borders and then – and then, at the same time, right beside it, have a whole thing about oh, when they cross these borders, guess what happens to them? Infinite detention in in super jails. Uh, and, and to but be, sure, let's be, let's be stoked about this. To
0: be fair, Stefan, I'm I'm quite confident that Canadian jails are more comfortable than American <laughs> detention centers.
2: Uh, hopefully, yeah.
3: but but that's not necessarily been shown in the case, especially within these ones that are you know, especially with within
2: uh, within where these refugees get sent. Yeah, and, you have a suicide rate that's extremely high. With mm. we don't know this. I mean, we should. But it's not common knowledge that there's people who have been in jail for 10 years because they don't have proper paperwork. And that's where I think we really need to start questioning what the hell do laws mean if laws are by design uh, torturing people.
0: Uh, generally, a lot of this stuff just doesn't go reported. And that's one of the interesting differences between Canada and the U.S. is that the, a lot of those stories get a lot more press and people feel they're very excited about it. But so much of this goes under the radar. And I mean, every time I meet with somebody who actually works in one of these areas, either with uh, immigration or um, uh, folks who work with a variety of uh, on a variety of racial or inclusivity, uh, inclusivity issues, uh, was they'll just rattle off a bunch of examples. and i will be like, I have heard of none of those things. Uh, and I'd actually actively try and look for them sometimes. Uh, and and it get or it gets caught up in my other news reading.
1: I think as citizens we need to we need to ask uh, if not demand truth, hmm. and to not do that lacks courage on our parts. Uh, and again, to, it, it lacks a certain complacency which will just not advance us uh, in the ways that I think I think we, we really need to think about uh, advancing. And and so um, you know seven uh, or actually Sarah knows you that you. Mention the word honesty mm. um i think you know when i when i look at canada the the aspiration i have is for an honest country and we're not going to be perfect uh nobody is um but the first step towards uh doing something about it is to be honest about it uh and if we can identify that uh as something that we we really really value and and act out, uh, our relationships with our politicians, with our institutions and with one another uh, will drastically improve. Uh, And we may not always agree with one another, uh, but at least we can start from a foundation of trust. And that trust is what's lacking right now.
2: And if I can say something to Adil's point, very simply, we need to start paying for journalism. That (laughs) truth will not exist. It will not be given to us for free. We need to pay the people who are doing the investigations, who are cultivating the relationships to get that truth to us. And without it, we won't build the country that we want, and we won't have the democracy that we want.
0: All right. I will have to cut it there. That is exactly out of time. I'm going to put links to, uh, Barnaby, your uh, initiative on that on the show post as well today. Other than that, have a good Green Week, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Check the website for all the show links and, and information about what we've been talking about. You've been listening to The Green Majority. Thank you so much for your time. Take care, and we'll talk to you real soon. That was the regular program, but we do have more coming up uh, in the bonus show uh, this week. Again, sorry for last week. We had a technical issue. We weren't able to do a bonus show. We uh, make up for it today uh, with the quality of the content, I think. Just carrying forward that last uh, part of the discussion a little bit further. So uh, here we go. Uh, again, a reminder, if you can support us, uh, if you'd like to be a Green Majority member, uh, $5 is the recommended uh, sign-up. You can do that $5 a month through patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Majority. We will, however, take... Any amount that you can spare. Uh, If you just want to let us know you appreciate the show, you can uh, sign up for as little as a dollar or you can go way above that. We'll take uh, $10,000 a month, no problem. Uh, As long as you don't, your name is not Exxon, uh, uh, we're probably, we can probably work something out. Uh, Enjoy the bonus show coming up now. Enjoy. Enjoy. All right. So we're in the bonus show. We're going to continue talking a little bit about uh, accessibility and diversity and a few of those uh, those topics. But Stefan, you had a point that you were trying to make as we close the show. I will let you make that point.
3: OK, sure. I'll make that point. I will then then we'll wildly switch to a different point entirely. Uh, that point was really just that I think the environmental movement has to understand that uh, that refugees are an environmental conversation uh, and that uh, environmental justice inherently cannot must include and uh, in, you know, in, in well, well documented is trying to include uh, those displaced people. And and so, if you're an environmentalist who doesn't also care about refugee policy, uh, then you're an environmentalist who doesn't really believe in climate change. Um, or, or you're the most optimistic environmentalist I've ever met who thinks we're actually going to solve it before people get displaced, but sorry, that's already happened. Um, and so, uh, the, that was really just that I think there's, you know the more, the deeper you get into environmentalism, the more you, you realize that, like, oh, right, everything is connected. Um, and so it sort of ends up being a, it's sort of that the question is, where do you draw lines to create any sense of understanding of what we're talking about? Uh, but I think, to some extent, what it comes to is that we start doing, instead of having this sort of, say, cup, uh, cupboards or things like that, um, or or, or organiz- ways to organizing things, it more becomes to lenses of which you are viewing things. Mm. Uh, and I think that actually ends up Really changing uh, your your perspective in a lot of different ways, uh, and I, like I recently, uh, what's interesting about this is, is that you can really see the world fundamentally differently if you just, if you just change the lens in which you see you really see it. Mm. Uh, you know, like you, I recently left uh, the uh, the James Baldwin uh, uh, sort of. Um, a movie, which is sort of loosely based off what he was going to be a novel he wanted to write, um, and and you 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 leave sort of seeing the world through his eyes, and it's this world where you're like it's and, and see, so seeing the world through through James Baldwin, you know the 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 legendary uh, you know African American advocate, um, is a very different world than you see it through say even an environmental lens, you know because when you're when you're dealing with stuff James Baldwin was dealing with. You aren't necessarily – climate change is so outside of your scope of caring. You know, like it, it becomes this very different conversation to some extent. Um, and then if you look at it, say, through a, you know, say a strictly journalistic lens of trying to understand the actual basic facts of what's happening, um, you see another entirely different world. And, and I feel like my life has been mostly just based around slowly adding in these other uh, lenses uh and, and then trying that lens on and seeing what the world looks like and then trying the next lens on and seeing what the world looks like and that and you only can understand what those lenses feel like if you if you if you listen and if you open up your if you try to pay as much attention as possible
0: well that's kind of that's kind of the story of the show we've been doing for such a long time I mean when we started I, you know you had a bunch of uh, environment education and and I had as well and I figured okay well good you know I'll get some media experience I'll, I'll get better at talking uh, and then I, all I got to do is read a few news articles a week and, and we're good to go we a show for the end of time, but that's really not been the case. The The story of the show over the last, I would say, six years of evolution has been this, oh, uh, we really, it's not just about convincing people that climate change is real. There's a number of barriers that are keeping people from being engaged on this issue. And so we realize that it's turned into this endlessly expanding uh, learning project on on at least i'll speak for myself uh, as far as myself about having to now to it being incapable of being a functional environmental advocate or climate change uh, uh, advocate uh, you can't simply understand climate change you also have to understand uh, the reasons why people may not be may have barriers what you can try and do to lower those barriers recognize a lot of my own biases and how to actually understand that that i was viewing it from my point of view and then i need to to reach out and learn from some of our guests about well that's not how that impacts me and and this is how this impacts me and, and how i might view that issue differently and i think that's sort of the key of one of these challenges of working on one of these large issues is that you know if we just sort of plow in with your own point of view um you're probably not going to be very successful and that's not necessarily because you're wrong but because you everybody has to be on board and 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 just agreeing with something isn't necessarily understanding the issue isn't necessarily the only barrier i would say that would be that's been my biggest learning opportunity over the last six years has been um just how incredibly narrow my perspective has been and my sense of experience has been and how much i have to learn about other people and how they view things and 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 that i can't be effective in what i'm trying to do without that information
3: yeah and uh, and to sort of pivot to our to our two guests who are still in the studio i feel like To some extent, we experience this a lot with trying to talk about social enterprise within 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 a public sphere. Uh, Because, as Barnaby correctly thought correctly did the very beginning, he's like, "I'm going to define a bunch of things for you," Uh, because you can spend a bunch of time just defining a bunch of things for people, uh, and 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 and, because that's the necessary first step to enter this conversation. You know, every industry has its jargon, but uh, but if you want to be, you know, if you want if like you know if you want to be an inclusive uh, community, uh, you. have to provide a, a a way to talk about it to everyone, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and it's something that we like that every I think every uh, space struggles with. It's it's creating it's 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 creating a way to speak about
1: things without it then also being a barrier to 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 entry. I think at the at the systems level to address that because you're absolutely correct. When said jargon is being created, you need a diversity of voices at the table. Uh, I don't know factually, but I'd love to see the room that to which or the, the the people who are involved with creating the terms climate change or social mm-hmm. innovation or social enterprise. And I don't know for sure, but I'm willing to put my my money down that there was not a diversity of voices to to creating this language, and language is powerful. Um, and and if you if you from the very beginning don't have all voices represented at the table. You'll see it in the language and in the policies and in the in the services that come out, uh, and you see that it won't reflect everyone. And when it doesn't reflect everyone, uh, then they won't include everyone in something that everyone needs to be included in.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't have a real conversation um, without fully understanding. You know, these the, 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 if you're not talking the same language. You know, so much of life is trying to talk the same language. And I would put you, Barnaby, uh, on a, from a journalistic angle because I feel like that may be the central job of journalists is to take. Uh, a sphere that has a that is inaccessible uh, to to a lot of the public and and make it accessible you know and how do you how do you communicate uh a you know these incredibly difficult scenarios um to uh, to to the average person who maybe have maybe has no context um and you know and and it's, it's like you know like you went you went on a trip and discovered learned a like sort of mini documentary uh, about this sort of entire culture of an entire sort of history of this, of this country and then had to find a way to at least sort of give people a sense of what everything you learned in 50 minutes uh, and, and it's like it's the central task of the journalist to take what is inaccessible and make it accessible as, as in a way that is both then interesting and you and not a lie you know like uh, more and more like the amount of which it's difficult to be a journalist who's you know it, to hold themselves to the highest standard of 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 knowing that everything they've said everything is right is is difficult in itself let alone then making it accessible
2: yeah i think increasingly the job of journalists is to organize the information that allows communities to organize themselves and so in that there is the role of being a filter uh being a, an explainer an organizer but uh um uh, kind of related. A colleague, David Topping, just did a, a kind of massive, by the standards of uh, citizen-based surveys, of 800 people, around 75% of whom identified as journalists. And the three areas that by far they identified as being the biggest issues in Canadian journalism were innovation and money, quite obviously, <laughs> uh, but diversity. And so I think, to your point, when the people aren't in the newsrooms or aren't in the in positions of power where a lot of the stories about those communities are, are being written. There's there's a problem there. And I think that for journalists to recognize that is a really, uh, you know, valuable first step. And hopefully the environmental sector and other sectors, this is becoming uh, in a way because that, that mask in the United States has fallen and it's making us be more self-critical. So how do we, uh, you know, and it's not about, necessarily inclusion it's just about how do we create um, industries and sectors that just reflect society and no longer where we need to try to to manufacture certain things and so there's a lot of work to be done there about removing these barriers and changing the hierarchies of, of power that that run a, in the case of journalism the structures that allow people to have access to information
3: yeah and and, and the ability to to even to and, and to communicate what matters you know like to some extent that's the craziest thing um, is that you know there is a relatively reason why most of the world well, well, i would match i would if i would take a guess if you asked a majority of Americans uh, if they knew that there was a war going on in Yemen uh, that it would be below fifty yeah. percent um I, I again that's a that 's one of those things where i 'm just throwing that out there randomly as, as a complete guess but i would be i'd be shocked uh if they if they, if people fully understood the, the this the scale of that of that of that war um but and, and then on a smaller scale the 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 news decides what's news, um, and so it's not. It's not. It's. It should not be shocking uh, due to the due to the lack of diversity, say, within even Canadian newsrooms, uh, that fifteen hundred missing Indigenous uh, or mur- murdered missing murder misses there. Fifteen hundred uh, women, Indigenous women, could go missing or be murdered, and not actually have a. And it takes for that to be finally the thing that is brought to the attention of of, of our of our society. Like, how do you get to that scale of of la- of losing people before before it becomes a conversation? It speaks to the fact that the people we're not the people making news. We're not in those communities, right? Well, the,
0: and there's a there's a secondary sort of cast off problem with that, which is that uh, in addition to important stories being not being told. Uh, is as the, is the example you just gave us there's also the the issue of the fact that when people consistently see media that does not represent uh, either issues they care about or are talking about issues in a way that is either insensitive or ignorant uh, to the community that it affects because of the ignorance of the organization doing the reporting uh, or the biases what the what it does is it turns people off that news source and so there's this sort of secondary problem of if you have people tuning out of those news sources there's now uh, potentially a uh, information gap that's happening where people are are giving up and maybe you know maybe some people give up and go to a source that is reputable like maybe our show haha <laughs> uh, but maybe they give up and they go to a source that is not reputable or maybe they sort of just abandon the news media because they don't see any perspectives uh that are as important or reflective to them and i, I think that that creates a real problem i think uh barnaby will probably hopefully second my motion here but i mean it's not just a matter of Um, appealing to people, it's incredibly important for a democracy to have a healthy uh, journalistic sector. Uh, And that that has two components. It requires journalists doing an effective job and uh, challenging people in authority, but it also requires someone to consume that information and do something with that information. And uh, and I'm concerned about both sides of that uh, prong.
2: Yeah. And if, if you want to get just to the heart of it, uh, we are a white settler society, and a, still a white supremacist society, in many ways. And so, if you want to talk about anything, I don't care what industry or sector, there's something fundamental, which is that we just don't count brown or black bodies the way that we count white bodies. Mm-hmm. And so, when there is masses of white refugees, climate refugees, suddenly the world will kick into action, I'm sure. And if there was, you know. And so this is really fundamental, and I think it's really hard for people to look at and to say that, oh, yeah, it does. But when you want to talk about journalism and Yemen, as Stefan brought up, wow. I mean, those families that were killed in that that early raid approved by Trump, only a few media outlets like The Intercept really went into who these people are. And these are people with the same aspirations as every other human, wiped out, and we don't hear anything. But then Trump is parading people, uh, people who have lost somebody – uh, killed by by an immigrant, like it's just it's race baiting in its most horrendous kind of way. And I think if we don't move past the point where we value all life, which is I know quixotic and cliché to see to say, then all this work is going to be for nothing. Yeah,
0: and I think it's a small example, and but it, it bothered me. But it's just a recent example. We had the the incident uh, two days ago uh, in London. And it's always this thing, and and the news always does this in it, but it just really gets under my skin, which is where, uh, you know, 40 people were killed. Here's the names of the three Canadians, as if the non-Canadians aren't important. I I mean, it's not exactly the point you're getting at, but it's sort of another thing where I, I don't understand. I see people as humans, and I think every person who perished is important, and I don't. I you know I, I don't know I there's this weird sort of filter about you know as you said there are a number of different ways uh, in which we sort of filter who we care about and who's important and who's not and and you know who we who we um, talk about and who we don't and what who's you know, what issues we talk about and what we don't as you said is heavily filtered um, by the people constructing that information. Um, I, as Stefan was uh, slyly pointing at his watch, we, uh, we do have to wrap up. Uh, I like to ask people because of, we're now in the age of Trump, uh, what is the thing you're optimistic about or what is the thing you're using to get you through the day as a way to close out with our guests at Ill Perhaps? You'll go first.
1: Uh, I, I, to your second piece and to reiterate something I said, um, I just want to be honest. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I can I can model that myself and – um, and it's, it's a value that I believe a lot in, and uh, it's not always easy. Um, but uh, but I think honesty is really something that um, I'm trying to do a lot of. Barnaby?
2: Uh It's a really tough question. I mean, before that, I think I was much more optimistic about the world. I, I think I worry, without wanting to be hyperbolic, that we're in that 1930s kind of time space. Um, Something that gives me I get I guess a bit of respite and and optimism is that I think uh, I think the the wool has been pulling down off the eyes of a lot of people, and I think for anybody who wants to be an ally there's an opportunity uh, as white people to actually call out white violence mm-hmm. and to to make that a part of the conversation because the conversation is often about you know, terrorism, where your chances of dying from a terrorist attack are the same from a fridge falling on you or drowning your, your bathtub. Uh, but white violence is, is happening and costing lives everywhere, and we don't count those lives. And so I think maybe that's, that's a little thing to be optimistic about, is that there's a role for more people to start to speak up and take risks and put their bodies in, uh, in harm's way to fight for, for the kinds of things that we need to see happen.
0: All right. Well, people hear uh, Stefan and mine, sarcastic comments on that uh, issue every single uh, week. So I will simply end with our guests. Thank you once again, uh, Dill, uh, Dallaf, and Barnaby, you guys, for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having us. All thank right. you.
0: And take care, listeners. We'll see you next week.